You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 8th of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show, forces loyal to a renegade general push on with their military offensive to take control of Tripoli and overthrow Libya's Western-backed government. Israel heads to the polls on Tuesday for a general election in which Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is fighting for his political life. My guests Sebastian Borger and Carol Walker will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including... The choice that lies ahead of us is either leaving the European Union with a deal or not leaving at all. Now, I think, the government thinks, we absolutely must leave the European Union. We must deliver Brexit. That means we need to get a deal over the line. British Prime Minister Theresa May will meet the leaders of France and Germany on Tuesday to plead for a short Brexit extension. All that plus the UK unveils plans to create a regulator with the power to find social media companies who stream terrorism images and extremist material. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Sebastian Borger, who is the London correspondent of the Tagesspiegel, and the political analyst, Carol Walker. So welcome both of you to the programme. Now, European Union foreign ministers have been meeting in Brussels to discuss the crisis in Libya. More than 30 people have died since fighting broke out a week ago after renegade General Khalifa Haftar of the Libyan National Army, which is allied to a rival authority in the east, ordered a march on the capital, Tripoli. Now, the move caught the international community by surprise and has escalated tensions in the oil-rich state. Libya's UN-backed government in the West says it will latch, launch a counter-offensive against Haftar's forces. The country has been unstable since its former dictator Muammar Gaddafi was violently overthrown from power in 2011. When you look at this story, Carol, there is a sense that the international community took its eye off the ball because it was distracted by events in Syria and Iraq and, of course, the rise of the Islamic State Caliphate. Absolutely. There are very troubling signs in Libya now. Uh, There are some... Two and a half thousand people have already fled their homes, according to the UN. We're hearing of about 25 people killed. And it seems as though General Khalifa Haftar is completely defying the efforts by the UN to try to broker a peace conference. Uh, The UN General Secretary, Antonio Guterres, was in Tripoli only very recently. Yet he does now seem to be launching an all-out assault on Tripoli. But you have to say that what is happening now is the result of the conflict and chaos whose seeds were sown back in 2011 when Colonel Gaddafi was toppled. And what you saw then was a splintering of the country into dozens, literally hundreds of different factions and militias who have recently coalesced around these two opposing centres of power. Um, And it does seem as though the West have been hedging their bets. They've been backing the UN, which supports the the government of Fayez al-Sarraj, who is saying that this is a coup against him. But many of those nations, in particular countries like France, 
have been tacitly supporting General Khalifa Haftar, not least because he has been quite effective in suppressing some of the more militant Islamic forces. So um, it does look like a very dangerous, a very unstable situation. And it's very difficult indeed to see what the outside countries, what the Western countries are going to do um, to try to halt any descent into violence. Mm, And this is important, isn't it, Sebastian? Because, yes, we've had the Americans in the European Union talking about having talks to somehow draw, diffuse the tension, tone things down a bit. But then doesn't that sound a little bit disingenuous when, as Carol pointed out, we've actually seen them pulling back some of their key personnel, etc. That doesn't really show much faith. Well, there is, there is neither an international community anymore um, because, of course, when you talk about the UN doing something, that's all very well, but there is a resolution in the, U, in the Security Council and uh, does it go through? No, because Russia vetoes it mm. now. Russia is behind the general. Russia wants the general to succeed. Russia wants the same uh, influence over uh, the, the oil and gas um, uh, tremendous uh, reserves that Libya has that France and Italy want. Uh, and, and there is no European Union position either. Mm. You remember the, the, the conference, I, I, can, I can't remember, was it in Rome and the French were peed off or was it in Paris and the Italians didn't like it? <laughs> I, I can't remember, sorry. But, 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 but this is the state of affair where we have. We have no solidified, no solid European position. We have America in totally Un- disinterested, mm. totally disinterested. No, and that was certainly which, going against to, Donald to Trump's be, own to strategy. Be, to, to be fair, of course, uh, to to the uh, uh, Trump administration was Obama's position as well. In in 2011, mm. you remember it was the, the Brits and the French who who, who toppled Gaddafi. Mm. Obama gave them a sort of support because they couldn't do it that their military couldn't basically do it without the yanks but but he said i'm not getting my fingers dirty and and in fact nor did they and and this is the mess we now have i have to say i mean i don't i didn't like it then but in 2011 uh, in the security council it was germany who abstained who abstained and and left its allies in the lurch ab- about libya and i i was very critical of it but the the, the problem is you know you've got to you've got to you break it you own it and again the west mm. hasn't done it Absolutely. not in yeah. afghanistan not in iraq not in Libya. indeed and the the lessons of those previous conflicts in iraq and afghanistan clearly were not lo- were not learned we saw french president nicolas sarkozy and david cameron appearing to crowds of cheering citizens Absolutely. on the streets of Tripoli after Benghazi, yes, it was Benghazi after it? of Benghazi, I should say, when uh, after Colonel Gaddafi had been felled. But once again, there was no effort afterwards mm. to no try to to try to help to uh, install some kind of law and order across the country to try and improve the infrastructure. Um, they took the plaudits for toppling uh, a disliked by at least part of the country mm. uh, dictator. But it, indeed, there was a hugely critical parliamentary report only two or three years ago that said that David Cameron had to take at least part of 
the responsibility for the difficulties and the chaos now besetting Libya mm. because he failed to follow through on his and actions. And it, it points to not having this plan B. To put it in very crude terms, if you're going to invade somebody's country or whatever, you need to have something to put back in there because there's an expectation, rightfully so, on the part of the people on the ground. And uh, I mean, I mean, okay, we that that was that that was then. This is now. I, I, I all I think is is important now is that, you know, the Italians and the French and the Germans and the Brits, whoever is, is thinking with a little more strategy beyond the day after tomorrow, will have to take this by the scruff of the neck of the neck and 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 get on with finding a solution because otherwise you will have Russia and Egypt by the way very mm. interesting that Russia that this is a new coalition again it, like in the 1970s you, Do know, you know this, this with this NASA almost... now we we suddenly have Putin and Egypt uh, cooperating on I mean it's fascinating and, and, but, but and, we've got to do something about fascinating, it fascinating but dangerous and, and I guess that when you you look at it in the way that Sebastian has has outlined it there is this sense that Libya could end up being a battleground for a proxy proxy rivalries being fought out that's the theater Absolutely, except that what is fascinating, as Sebastian has been pointing out, is that um, the United States is not interested in getting involved. Uh, Trump's whole approach to international relations has been to focus on what matters to Americans back at home. He has wanted to make sure that he can pull troops back where they are engaged, certainly not get them engaged in new complex conflicts the other side of the world. Um, the the French and the Italians are uh, at loggerheads accusing one another of scrapping over oil rights. The UK is so preoccupied with Brexit that there's absolutely no prospect mm. of well, Theresa May trying to, trying to spearhead some diplomatic initiative. And the UN, without... The uh, without the force of the United States behind it ha- is proving pretty toothless. It, it does look at the moment as though the rebel commander, with the tacit backing of Russia, of the of Egypt, and of the UAE, uh, there is very little to, to stop him uh, yeah, moving so, on towards Tripoli. Militarily, I'm not so sure about that because I think there are there are still uh, supporting the government in Tripoli's pretty battle-hardened tr- uh, militias. I'm not so sure whether... Because you, you have to remember that he needs a quick success as well. Because, of course, he is in hawk with Islamists who he then wants to get rid of. So, uh, and It is a very, very complex, very, what very it, what dangerous it, What picture. we will see is a bloodbath if we, if we don't get out. Yeah. And, and Libya is already a uh, departure point for so many of the refugees who come to Europe. Well, this is the other point which I wanted to raise, that it's a focusing of minds given its geography and the fact that if you have these these people who are displaced, they've got to go somewhere and the timing as well from Europe's point of view. And Libya is already... A, a point of departure for many others fleeing other parts of Africa yes. uh, are exploiting the chaos and the lack of discipline and rule of law in Libya to use the Libyan coastline as a jumping off point to try to get to Europe. So it, it can only exacerbate the migrant crisis facing the European mm. Union. But as, also as well, Sebastian, we shouldn't rule out, the, rule out IS as well because they thrive 
in chaos. And this is the perfect crucible for them to, to, to rise again, if you like, because they feel that they've been humiliated, losing the caliphate. They've got to start again somewhere. Naked self-interest dictates that uh, Europe is getting its, its hands dirty because as, as if you have Putin in there, he can turn on the turn on and off the tap of refugees from the mm. rest of Africa uh, and if you have the the uh, the IS there well that, that's that's another then then of course uh, Mr Trump might come back mightn't he mm. having having what did he say annihilated um, yeah, annihilated IS, IS. In, in Syria. Yeah, but they'll just, they'll just go somewhere else. But then I guess that the final closing thought on this is: look, the UN had penciled in talks about Libya from the 14th to the 16th of April. The the impression that that you're left with is that there is a reluctance to take ownership of this. So realistically, what hope, if any, is there of these talks actually happening? Happening, let alone achieving something. It is very difficult to see that happening unless, as Sebastian points out, uh, the Russians use their influence to try to say to uh, both sides in this conflict, look, let's avoid the bloodbath, let's avoid the conflict and loss of life and let us sit around the table and try and work this out. But having said that, that is what they've been trying to do since 2011. That is why you've had this standoff between these two power bases and it's very difficult to see where there's going to be a meeting of minds. Mm. Okay, then let's move on now because Israelis go to the polls on Tuesday in the German election that has pitted Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's right-wing government against a centrist alliance led by Benny Gantz, the general and former chief of staff. Now, Mr Netanyahu, who has, who has been accused of bribery and fraud, has mounted a tough campaign in which he said he will annex Jewish settlements in the West Bank if he is re-elected. Mr Gantz, a political novice, has accused his rival of indulging in, and I quote, the pleasures of power, corruption and hedonism. Recent polls indicate that both men are now running neck and neck. Uh, Sebastian, we're talking about a general election, but you get the sense that there's more to it than that, that in many ways it's actually a referendum on Benjamin Netanyahu as a man, as a leader. Well, that's one aspect of it. Uh, but remember, we said the same thing about the last Israeli elections and, and, and were quite hopeful <laughs> that, <laughs> that people might throw him out. And, and they did not, of course. I mean, the, the, clearly the Israeli um, uh, people aren't any cleverer than, than uh, <laughs> the American or the British or the German, for that matter, with uh, voting for populist uh, leaders who, I mean, he is mired in corruption, isn't he? And of course, and the, 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 opposition, well. the opposition has never in the last 10 years managed to, to find a coherent pl uh, plan and person to, to coalesce around. Now, maybe the, maybe the rival Benjamin is, 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 is that person. That's hard to tell. For, I think from a, from a German perspective, and I guess for, from most European countries' perspective, fascinating to see how militarized um, the, leaders, the political leadership in Israel is. I mean, Netanyahu, of course, uh, an elite soldier uh, uh, before he, be he went into politics. Um, two former prime ministers, Rabin and uh, Barak, mm. also, also uh, 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 chiefs of the general staff. Yeah. Um, which, which, by the way, you said he's a political novice, but of course, if you are the chief of the general staff, you, you are highly yeah, political. I know, I know, in terms of party politics. But I mean, the, the interesting thing about this 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 uh, election carol is is it's how far to the right 
Benjamin Netanyahu has gone, which is quite extraordinary. Absolutely. It looks as though Israeli voters are going to face up to a choice between one or other hardline, right-wing, security-minded political leaders. It's a choice between Benjamin and Benny. Uh, one commentator <laughs> I saw put it as a choice between Trump and Trump. And uh, <laughs> both of them have been uh, talking about security. Both of them are, are throwing out all kinds of hardline um, pledges about their proposals for dealing with the Palestinians. As we heard there, Benjamin Netanyahu has been talking about annexing um, Israeli settlements on the West Bank. Uh, Benny Gantz has been talking about um, separating off the Palestinian communities from the Israelis. Um, and what is fascinating is that uh, there are actually some 40 different parties standing mm. in this election. And it will come down to which of these two right-wing mm. leaders can form a coalition and both of them seem to be wooing those who are even further to the right than they are. So um, the chances of any reaching out to the Arab communities resulting from this election is clearly a very, very yeah, distant prospect indeed. You can understand if they actually indeed. abstained from voting. I mean, not only are they right, uh, right-wing, almost ultra-nationalist, I mean, there are very odd parties as, as well. I, I, I read with great interest about the Zehut Party, which is uh, which says we'll only join the coalition of Benny Gantz uh, if if we decide on the legalization of cannabis. <laughs> I mean, I just think... <laughs> He's right-wing but libertarian <laughs> at the same point. <laughs> It's, it's like that mean actually smoking it in the Knesset or something, which would be quite interesting. But I mean, look, you can't get away from the T word, which you've both alluded to. And this is Donald Trump. And he's a personal friend of Netanyahu. So you get the feeling that given how Mr. Trump himself, if you like, has been pandering in terms of what he's done, you know, courting the Jewish community at home, actually appealing to Israelis. It's almost you can almost imagine Benjamin Netanyahu out on out on the stump with Trump by his side. So Trump is an asset. Absolutely. And indeed, many of his campaign posters have featured him alongside President Trump. And you can see this alliance between the two of them. Uh, President Netanyahu was absolutely delighted when um, the US pulled out of the uh, the Iran uh, nuclear pact. Mm. Uh, he was, uh, you know, we've had the Americans moving their embassy to Jerusalem, something that was applauded by mm. uh, Netanyahu. So I think Brazil followed suit on that. Uh, absolutely. And, and we, we've also seen President Trump um, uh, uh, saying that he is quite happy for President Netanyahu to talk about annexing the Golan Heights. So these are two right wing leaders um, delighted with one another's com uh, company. And you can see that they'll be cheering on in the White House if President Net Netanyahu once again manages to s glide over all those corruption allegations and return for yet another yeah, which, period Yeah, which you could power. do because it is a very fractured political si uh, system out there with all these different parties. But Sebastian, I'd love to bring you to a quote which I actually picked up from the New Statesman. They had a writer in there in Jerusalem who's been looking at these elections and he says that this election is, quote, merely underscoring how right-wing Israel has become. And it, I mean, 
again, if we take a step back and and put ourselves in the shoe of a, of an average Israeli voter, and look at the security situation in that region, um, and see that um, they get. Uh, the, the the Israeli government uh, under Prime Minister Netanyahu has had uh, very good support from the new U.S. administration and actually got pretty good support from the old, even though they they didn't like each other personally. Um, would you not maybe stick with the status quo? Mm. Particularly when you have someone on the other side who, who, who as far as I, I mean, you know, from a distance, very hard to judge, but doesn't seem to actually inspire confidence in, in real change or, or a new mm. approach, which could only be um, uh, uh, going towards the Palestinians yeah. to some extent. So better the devil you know. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, and my guests Sebastian Borger and Carol Walker. Now coming up next, the British Prime Minister Theresa May will meet the leaders of France and Germany on Tuesday to plead for a short extension to, yes, you've guessed it, Brexit. How do we make better cities? Places that work for people of all ages and backgrounds and provide the obvious essentials, from great transport to perfect places to work, as well as the softer elements that truly deliver quality of life from urban swimming pools to rooftop clubs. Published by Gestalten, the Monocle Guide to Building Better Cities unpacks what makes a great city. Whether you're looking for a new place to call home or need a little help fixing up your own. The latest in our series of beautiful large format books is available now. Buy yours at monocle.com slash shop. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. Still with me are Sebastian Borger and Carol Walker. Now, the UK is supposed to leave the European Union at the end of this week. And Prime Minister Theresa May is working furiously to ensure the country doesn't leave without a deal. Crash out is the popular phrase. She's flying to Paris and Berlin on Tuesday for meetings with the French and German leaders, where she's expected to plead the case for extending Article 50. That is the mechanism which triggered Britain's exit from the EU. You're all with me so far. That's good. At the same time, Mrs May... May is talking with the opposition Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn, whose support she needs to get her deal through Parliament. This is her exit deal. You got that, didn't you? <laughs> it's always very complicated. But I mean, Carol, you are the Brexit queen here. Let's let's take a look at um, what's happening in terms of these meetings, because the murmurings we've had from Angela Merkel, the German leader, appear to be quite sympathetic towards Mrs May. But it's the Prime Minister of France, Emmanuel Macron, who's been playing hardball. Now, she wants an extension to the 30th of June. Realistically, do you think she'll get it? Well, look, there is a sort of sense of deja vu whenever we come round to this. Uh, Theresa May, once again, is just desperately trying to get a little bit more time, just try and kick the can down the road a little bit further, having really been so close to the brick wall so many times that you would think it couldn't be kicked any further. But what we're seeing this week is the, the crucial summit on Wednesday, um, as you say, uh, having put the departure date back as things stand, the UK is due to leave on April the 12th. That's this Friday, unless it can get its deal through. Um, at the moment, there, it looks pretty impossible for her to achieve that in time. So she is asking for a longer 
extension. We know that EU leaders are certainly going to turn around and say to her, look, if you're going to stay, uh, if there's going to be any form of extension, you will have to fight the European Union elections, which are due to take place on May the 23rd. And the warnings for some of the arch-Brexiteers that if the UK is forced to do that, they're going to be a hugely disruptive influence around um, the tables of various EU nations. That has already been discussed by EU leaders. Um, Look, when it comes down to it, it seems quite likely that the EU will allow an extension of some sort. Um, Donald Tusk, who is the president of the EU Council, has been talking about a flex mm. extension, which is to say that you could have about a year's extension. Well, that'll go down well but to here, bring it, it home earlier. Um, <laughs> Uh, because I think what many EU leaders are concerned about is the UK endlessly coming back for more and more extensions. What they're asking for is a plan from Theresa May. At the moment, she simply hasn't got one. She has failed to get the support of her own party and uh, partners on board. She is trying to cook up something with her, the opposition, uh, at the moment, there's little sign of any breakthrough in those talks. Yeah, and that's interesting, isn't it, Sebastian? Because the government's trying to put a very positive face on the talks that it's having with the opposition. They're ongoing. And yet, if you listen to Jeremy Corbyn and uh, Sir Keir Starmer, who's actually leading these Brexit negotiations, they're just saying, well, we're not getting any traction at all. We want that customs union. We seem to be in Groundhog Day, don't we? I mean, nobody can afford to pull out of talks. Nobody can afford to actually say no, uh, bugger off. Uh, nobody can say that, particularly not the, uh, the Europeans, any sane European wouldn't say uh, you'll have to crash out. Um, so so we'll, we're faced with this situation of, of no solution and can kicking f- for for longer although don't rem- don't uh, don't forget that tusk uh, has always been despite his terrible image in the british press been someone who who is sympathetic to britain and and genuinely of course just because that's his function uh, to, uh, sympathetic t- towards member states interests and and um, you remember the last crucial summit uh, where, where, in fact, the, the heads of state and government were tougher than Tusk mm. and, and, and imposed uh, th- these two dates, actually, 12th April, 22nd May. And, and um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past them to, to do something similar uh, on, on Wednesday and, uh, and actually say to, to, to Britain in, in the, in the uh, person of uh, Theresa May, uh, who, of course, they realise won't be prime minister for very much longer um, either you either you pass the deal um, or you have a general election or you have a referendum otherwise and 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 all of that you you have now another what, what i don't know four weeks to decide and unless you come up with something then you're off I, I honestly because we cannot carry on like this no it, it, it is groundhog day this one time is very tight so in the in the window we have left let's take a look at the final story because the uk government has unveiled plans for an independent regulator with the power to fine or block technology companies streaming harmful material such as child abuse or terrorism images. 
Now, under the proposals, the regulator would also have the authority to impose fines on tech company executives and to force search engines to remove links to offending websites. The move follows the 2017 suicide of a 14-year-old schoolgirl who took her own life after watching material about depression and suicide on her Instagram account. Carol, you get the sense that this was inevitable because there had been a number of controversies involving tech companies and they were told, look, you've got to clean your act up. And they, they, the appearance was, was that they, they thought that they were too big to take any notice and now it's inevitable the government has to crack the whip. Yeah, there's been an outcry about a whole series of instances where it's seen that these big tech companies have simply not acted sufficiently swiftly or rigorously to deal with harmful content. Um, you mentioned there the death of uh, Molly Russell, who took her own life, and her family have said that they believe that the images of self-harming were at least contributory factors towards her suicide. Of course, since then, we have seen these uh, the appalling murders mm. in New Zealand where the pictures were live-streamed, although, of course, in that instance, uh, they did, uh, Facebook did act very swiftly mm. to try to remove the images before they were shared. But, of course, there were thousands of mm. it was copies of this um, that circulated before they could act. I, I think that whilst there are clearly very strong grounds for saying that these big internet sites must surely be subjected to rules and regulations. Radio stations like this can't publish uh, material, can't broadcast material that incites violence, that incites hate, that incites hate, that is harmful, that is derogatory. But I think there is a question here about exactly how the regulator is going to act how you're going to define harm and whether it could then end up being too heavy-handed mm. on some of the smaller sites that will also be caught okay, by this. Let, let me take that point or put that point to you, Sebastian, because there is the criticism that it could threaten free speech. And again, it's striking that balance between, on the one hand, censoring um, dreadful material, but at the same time, giving people the freedom of expression. Look, I mean, we have in this world uh, a number of countries led by China who, who of course, uh, uh, brutally censored the internet. I mean, anything we will do in the in, here in Britain or, or indeed in Germany it will be minute compared to that. And the argument is, I think, out of the window because the the, the, the tech companies have not taken any, uh, not not at, at least not nearly enough action against what is, why they are increasingly becoming unsocial media. I, I, have, I have everything. It's a white paper. Let's see what the discussion brings. Let's see which, which regulator it is. Let's see how big the fines are that the regulator can, can impose because that's where it is. They've, it's got to hurt them. It's got to be billions rather than millions before these people take any notice of, any, of any other government. We've had the same thing with mm. Facebook and Germany. And let's not hold our breath because we're going to have a long consultation and one senses that this was a government desperate to try and show it was doing something other than Brexit and there's no sense that any yeah, of these rules or regulations are going to come in anytime soon. Be done. Let's, let's leave it on that note because we have reached the end of today's show. Sebastian Borger and Carol Walker, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Teresa Marvuli and our studio manager was Christy Evans. More music next, then at 1900 Hours, it is the Monocle Culture Show with Rob Bound and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily. That's at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye. <laughs>